Join me this morning, would you, in Psalm 34. Psalm 34. If you take your Bibles and you kind of just open it right about to the middle, hopefully you'll be in the Psalms. You might be in Isaiah. If you land in Isaiah, just flip backwards in your Bible a little bit till you get to the Psalms. Psalm 34 as we continue our uh, summer in the Psalms. I've also learned this week that I think every other Baptist church, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, preaches a sermon series in the Psalms during the summer. That's just how it happened. As I drive by other churches and see on their uh, marquees and things, they're also in the Psalms. And so uh, we're terribly uncreative as a Baptist people, but that's okay. Last week we looked at the first of seven different genres of Psalms that we'll look at. We looked at hymns. This week we're going to look at songs of thanksgiving. Songs of Thanksgiving. Perhaps you, like me, when you were a child, received a gift from a family member or friend or something like that, and your parents encouraged you or maybe made you sit down with pen and paper and write a thank you note for the gift that you received. If you're a better person than me, and odds are you are, you did that of your own initiative. It didn't have to have someone to force you to be grateful to other people. There are several, and as I was thinking about just the practice of writing notes of thanks to other people, expressing our gratitude to others, I thought I'd go look for some famous thank you notes throughout history. And I found one quite interesting from one Clyde Champion Barrow. If you don't know that name, he is the male half of the uh, criminal duo Bonnie and Clyde from the 1930s who would rob banks and shoot people and take police on high-speed chases. I'm not condoning their lifestyle, but Clyde Champion Barrow wrote, wrote a thank-you note to Henry Ford of Ford Motor Company. You'll see the image of his note on the screen behind me. The note says this. He wrote it in April of 1934. Clyde writes to Henry Ford, Dear Sir, while I have still got breath in my lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. I have drove Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. For sustained speed and freedom uh, from trouble, the Ford has got every other car skinned. And even if my business hasn't been strictly legal, it don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in the V8. Yours truly, Clyde Champion Barrow. These are the kinds of things that, you know, it's like 80 years later. We can laugh about that, I guess, now. But it's interesting the kinds of words that a heart of gratitude will bring out of a person. Even wretched sinners like Clyde Champion Barrow can find it within themselves to be grateful for things. What might the language of the heart of, of not an unredeemed sinner, but a sinner saved by God's grace, what might the language of a heart that is grateful for the grace he or she has received from God sound like? What, what might a thank you note or a song of gratitude to God look like if we were able to write or to sing one? Well, thanks be to God, we have several examples of these songs of thanksgiving in the Psalms. Songs of gratitude, a heart of thankfulness to God for what he has done in the life of his people. Today we turn our attention to songs of thanksgiving and to one in particular in Psalm 34. Now last week I gave several uh, distinguishing characteristics of what hymns in the Psalms look like. I want to give you a few of what songs of thanksgiving are like. So as you read the Psalms, you can pick out which are songs of thanksgiving. First of all, songs of thanksgiving can often sound like hymns in their very worshipful tone and language. Some would even consider songs of thanksgiving to be kind of a subset of hymns among the psalms. 
They can even look like wisdom songs in parts, and we'll see a little bit of that in Psalm 34 today. Usually the songs of thanksgiving are very personal in nature. You'll see language of I, me, my, first person kind of language. The psalmist singing about a personal experience or singing from personal experience. Generally, psalms will follow a structure that looks like this. There will be an initial invocation of thanksgiving or blessing to God. We'll see that in Psalm 34, verse 1, where the the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He's giving an invocation of, of thanksgiving or blessing to God. Then following that, there will be a portion which is just a description of the reason or the event for thankfulness. The psalmist recounting what happened in his life that has caused him to be thankful. And then he'll close the psalm with an account of God's salvation or, uh, or, or God's action in the psalmist's life. So invocation to praise, description of why they are thankful, and then a, a recounting of God's salvation in their life. Songs of thanksgiving are psalms that come from the perspective of one who is reorienting his life around the Lord after a traumatic or or life-endangering situation, maybe maybe even a, a circumstance in life where the psalmist's faith was at danger. But having been delivered from the Lord, he is moved to gratitude and expresses those thanks in these psalms of thanksgiving. Here are a few psalms of thanksgiving uh, uh, in the Bible that you may want to read this week. I'll just give you the numbers. You can write them down and, uh, and read them this week. Psalms of thanksgiving are 32, 33, Psalm 34, which we'll see today, Psalm 100, Psalm 107, and Psalm 118. Now, these are not an exclusive list, or uh, there, there are others as well, but there are uh, six or so to get you through the week. Maybe you'll want to plan your Bible reading around this week around those six psalms. Well, having understood a little bit about what songs of thanksgiving look like, let's turn our attention to one in particular and, uh, and learn from God's Word as we do. Would you stand with me as we read Psalm 34? The psalm begins, and you'll probably have a subtitle like this uh, in your uh, your Bible. It says, Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Though, uh, the young lions suffer and want, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the righteous are toward the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears 
and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Psalm 34, Psalm of Thanksgiving, is one of 13 psalms that have this kind of historical reference to the life of David to begin. We see the subtitle there, and actually in the Hebrew Bible, this subtitle is verse 1, and verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible is is verse 2. Two, but the subtitle says a Psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Specifically, this Psalm refers to the period in David, the second king of Israel's life, when before he was king and uh, the the present king Saul was seeking to kill David, uh, uh, David had to flee from Saul and he fled from the land of Israel into the kingdom of the Philistines. This takes place, you can read about this event in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. During that time, it would appear that David uh, left Israel to go to the land of the Philistines to serve the king of the Philistines, who here in Psalm 34 is named Abimelech, but in 1 Samuel uh, uh, 21, we see that his name was Achish. It could be that he just went by two different names. It seems that David wanted to go and maybe serve as a sort of independent, anonymous mercenary for the king of the Philistines. Like so long as he can't live in Israel, he might as well go and maybe be a little bit of a soldier for hire for the Philistines. But Abimelech or Achish, the king of the Philistines, recognizes who David is. And immediately David's life is in danger. Now he's got to figure out how to, uh, how to, to not be uh, killed by the Philistines, how to get them off of his back too. He's, he's really between a rock and a hard place. And so in order to keep himself safe uh, from the attack by the king of the Philistines, he pretends to be insane. He foams at the mouth and acts like a crazy person, doesn't wash his hair, and goes about acting insane so that the Philistines will, will think that he's not a threat. It's like, this guy's just a nut. We'll just leave him alone. And so he was eventually driven out of Philistia. This was, in 1 Samuel 21, in the life of David, an undeniably dark and difficult time for him a really hard period where he, he, he could not live safely in his homeland of Israel and he could not live safely even amongst his enemies in Philistia. And so he has to pretend to be crazy just to stay alive. This psalm, Psalm 34, is intended to be written uh, uh, or understood out of that context of God delivering David from this incredibly difficult time. So just keep in mind today as we look at Psalm 34, that event in the life of uh, of David and, and try to see the, the gratitude, the thankfulness that would come out of uh, David's heart as he's delivered from that period. This psalm is an interesting one as well because it's an acrostic psalm. You know what acrostics are. You probably wrote some when you were in elementary school where you, you write your name uh, vertically, the letters of your name vertically down the side of the paper. So S-T-E-P-H-E-N. And each line of a poem about yourself starts with that, that letter, right? Stephen, super awesome dad. T, theologically sound. E, ecclesiologically excellent. I'll keep going, but I'm afraid, I'm, I'm afraid my, my ego may be inflated. But you know what acrostics are. Well, Psalm 34 is an acrostic, 
each line beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in, in order. Now, David misses one letter, and he, uh, the last line starts with a letter that's out of order, but we'll forgive him of that. It's good anyway. The Hebrew alphabet is, and uh, those who come and pray with us early on Sunday mornings at 845, uh, we read through the Psalms, and uh, we read a Psalm uh, uh, every week and then pray and ask God to, to bless our gathering in the morning. If you'd like to come and join us for prayer any Sunday morning at 845, just meet us right here in this room. We pray with some of our Sunday school teachers and, and those who are on the praise team, come and join us. But we've been in Psalm 119, which is a really long acrostic psalm. Each stanza beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And I've been teaching or trying to teach or at least reciting the Hebrew alphabet to those who are uh, there uh, when, when we pray. And it goes something like this. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion. Chet, tet, yod, kaf, lamed, mem, nun, samek, ayin, pei, tzadikof, resh, sin, shin, tav, ha, ha, ha. Now I've sung my olive bait. Don't you think that I am great? So if you want to learn, if you want to learn your Hebrew alphabet, you can read Psalm 119, and then you can go to Psalm 34 in, uh, in the Hebrew, and you can see, uh, even if you can't read Hebrew, you can recognize the letters and see that uh, it is go, each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's artistry. There is, uh, there is beauty in the Psalms in that way. The psalmist using every aspect of their language to glorify and to honor God. Well, let's look at the psalm in its, in its progression as we've seen how psalms of thanksgiving go. First of all, let's look at the psalmist's intention and invitation. Bless the Lord. That's how the psalmist begins this psalm, and it's what he invites us to do as well. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Notice the movement of the psalmist's language in these first verses, in his, in his giving his intent to bless the Lord and his invitation to do the same. He begins personally, I will bless the Lord. He deepens in his own personal commitment. I'll do it all the time. And then he extends an outward call to others to bless the Lord with him. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us together, all of us, exalt his name. Think a moment about your general mindset when you consider that as a believer in life, you, like David, will suffer in different ways. Just know that that is a given, that, that you will encounter suffering and difficulty in your life. This psalm is written after a time of deep suffering in David's life. And surely we are not guaranteed that in Christ we will not suffer. Just read 1 Peter for example, to, to see that there's no guarantee that you will not suffer in this life for following Jesus. In fact, the opposite. You, you will most likely encounter difficulty and suffering in this life because of your decision to follow Jesus. And then go a step further and consider how your preparation for suffering will affect how you respond after suffering abates, after suffering goes away. So much of David's ability to be thankful, to, be, to, uh, to have a heart of, of gratitude in Psalm 34 in the middle of a difficult time in his life is because prior to ever suffering at the hands of Saul or Abimelech, or Achish, whatever you'd like to call him, prior to ever entering into this position, his heart was already ready to give thanks to God for when he would be delivered. Amen. Are you ready now before suffering to praise God for his deliverance after suffering? For the psalmist, his mind is set on the Lord before he ever endures hardship. And so when he is delivered, he is already prompted to give praise and thanks to God who has delivered, to him, who has delivered him. 
It is the intent we see of the psalmist here to bless the Lord. That is to speak a good word about the Lord and to bless him at all times, literally at every season of life. Christian, is that your intent? To bless the Lord at all times? To every season of life, every moment of every day for his praise to continually be in your mouth, on your lips? Notice the impact of having this intent of being ready to praise the Lord. Having this intent, I will bless the Lord at all times, just the, the, the deep sense of gratitude that David feels as he's writing this psalm, it, it leads him to bring others to praise and thankfulness as well. Right? How, how can you read just verses 1 and 2 and, and not be brought to a sense of gratitude yourself for the goodness of God in your life and the lives of those around you? As David begins to talk about how great God is, he hasn't even said that much, but even as he begins to talk about how great God is, it's like almost within my own soul. I'm going, yeah, David, you're right. And then he gets to verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I'm like, yeah, dude, let's do it. It's awesome. Here's the truth we need to understand, that genuine gratitude to the Lord, genuine thankfulness to God for what he's done, for who he is, encourages gratitude in others, doesn't it? When we are really genuinely grateful to God, thankful to him, and we express that to other believers who have also tasted his grace, who have understood his mercy, who have placed their faith in Jesus, it begins to well up thankfulness and gratitude in their hearts also. Some of the times that I've been the most moved to gratitude to God for what he has done to me are times when I've been sitting with ailing, dying Christians who even in their last days can, can speak of their gratitude to God for their life and, and for the faith that he has helped them to endure with. To sit with someone who's in their very last days when all that they have on their mind is just gratitude to God for the life that they have had always enlivens me to greater personal gratitude as well. So if you're thankful to God for something, tell someone about it. If God has delivered you from something, share that with others, right? And, and see their gratitude increase as well. Let us learn to be a thankful and, uh, and gracious and, uh, and grateful people to God by, by just sharing our gratitude with one another. We move from the psalmist's intention and invitation to bless the Lord to his motivation, the, the reason that he's moved to bless the Lord here. His motivation is that the Lord heard and saved me. We see this in verses 4 through 7. Here in this section of the psalm, we get down to the cause of the psalmist's gratitude. And the reason for his gratitude is as simple as this. The Lord heard me and the Lord saved me. In verse 4, look in your Bibles. We see that the psalmist sought the Lord by prayer and was answered by being delivered from his fears. In verse 5, we see that the psalmist is grateful because he knows that those who look on the Lord are made radiant by the reflection of his glory. Though the psalmist may be humiliated by others, the one who fears the Lord and looks to him will be exalted and will never be ashamed for their faith and dependence upon God. Amen. Verse 6, the psalmist, a man who is poor in spirit, cried to the Lord, he says, and was saved. Verse 7, he says, the messenger of the Lord, that is the, the angel of the Lord, the, the manifestation of the Lord's presence, surrounds his people and delivers them from hardship and difficulty. When we read these verses, we, we should be taken in our minds to another place of Scripture that says very much these same things about this God who sees and hears and knows and answers his people. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, prior to God calling Moses at the, that, uh, that event around the, the burning bush as the Pharaoh who is in Egypt 
uh, increases the slavery or the burden of slavery on the people of Israel. We read this, Exodus 2.23, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Compare that with verses 4 through 7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. Those who look to him are radiant. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. The experience of the psalmist, Psalm 34, the experience of David and being delivered from from Abimelech and the danger there in Philistia is much the same as the deliverance that the Israelites experienced in Exodus when prior to being delivered, they cried to God for help and he heard them. He saw them. He remembered his promises and he knew. I'm reminded also of Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, going forward into the New Testament. But what, what happens when we cry out to God and the promise of Scripture of salvation when we cry out to Him? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13 goes this way. Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. The psalmist I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you seek God's grace by submitting your life to Christ as Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, having died as a, uh, uh, to pay the penalty for your sins, you will be saved is the promise of Scripture. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That means one believes and is made right with God. And with the mouth, one confesses. We say out loud, we, we proclaim Jesus as Lord and we are saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Dear friend, have you trusted in Jesus this way? Have you turned to and cried out to God for help, knowing that you, a sinner, can do nothing to change the, the impact of your sin against God, that you need His help to overcome, to get past, to give you victory over, over your rebellion against Him? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you believed in your heart God has raised Him from the dead? Have you given your entire life in submission to Him and understood the salvation that He gives? If not, dear friend, do it today. Yeah. Do it today. Know Jesus today. Be saved the way that the psalmist was. Be saved the way that Paul the Apostle in the New Testament tells us to be saved. And then, friend, if you are saved or if you become saved for the first time today, give thanks to God that he can be trusted to save. Yeah. That's the promise of Scripture, isn't it? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who repent of their sin and trust in Christ will be saved. Not might be saved, not could be saved. There's no potentiality there. If you really have turned from your sin and given all your life to the control of Jesus, taking up your cross to follow him da daily, you will be saved. That is the promise. So give thanks to God that he can be trusted to save. You can rely on that. You can bank on that. 
And knowing God's faithfulness to save gives us intense gratitude to return to him regularly to say thank you over and over and over again. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for redeeming me from my sin. Thank you, God, for saving me from who I would be apart from your grace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There was several years ago a man living off the coast of Brazil who uh, found uh, on a beach one day an oil-covered, starving penguin who had uh, managed to swim his way through an, an oil slick and, uh, and, and was not able to swim, was not able to move around, was uh, not able to eat. The penguin was named Dindim by this man, was taken back to his house, was cleaned up, nursed back to health. And then uh, towards the end of the season, the, uh, the man took the penguin and sent him back, uh, put him back into the ocean and he was gone. Well, much to the man's surprise, the very next year, about the same time that he found the penguin on the beach, the penguin returned. Dim Dim came back. Found the, the man found him, and immediately this penguin went right to the man and, and, and was just attached to him again for several months, lived in his house like a pet, like a member of his family. And after the season was over, Dim Dim went back into the ocean, swam back to his other uh, swimming waters throughout the rest of the year. And then the next year, and then the next year, and then the next year, and the next year, every single year at the same time of year that he was first rescued, he returns back to the, he returned back to the man uh, to spend several months with him. He was part of his family. There's just a sense of gratitude in this penguin for having been saved from, from certain death at the hands of this compassionate man in Brazil. And he returns time and time again to say thank you, thank you, thank you. How much more, dear Christian, ought we to, with regularity, return to God with gratitude because he can be trusted to save, remembering what he has brought us out of and returning to him with thankfulness. The psalmist gives us his motivation for praise. The Lord heard and saved me. And then he deviates a little bit. We see the psalmist's deviation in the psalm. There are three movements or or, uh, three parts to the structure of songs of thanksgiving. There's an intention to praise. There's the motivation for praise. And then there's the the kind of reaffirmed uh, call to praise one more time at the end, or a remembrance of God's salvation. But here in verses 8 through 14, the psalmist deviates from his plan. And he decides to teach us something. He says, learn from me. Here the psalmist includes a little wisdom in his song of thanksgiving. And in so doing, you'll find that the psalmist invites those that he is leading in worship to learn from him and from the salvation that he has experienced. Look at verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see, says the psalmist, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. At this point, I'm really tempted to unpack all that the psalmist is saying here in these verses, but I think it's probably better to let the psalm to speak for itself here today. Dear friends, hear the invitation of David to trust the Lord. Invitation from the mouth of a man who had suffered deeply and been rescued. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you skeptical about the goodness of God this morning? Are you resistant to faith in Jesus because you aren't sure that giving up your autonomy to follow him is really worth it? I would invite you this morning to suspend disbelief and skepticism for just a moment. And with a humble heart, Approach God to test his goodness. I promise you he will not disappoint. Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Give him a try and find that blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verses 11 through 14 The psalmist turns to the children, to those who are younger, less experienced, less learned. He says, children, learn from me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Turning to those who maybe have not yet tasted the Lord's goodness in hard times, the psalmist offers a lesson. He says, good life in many days are found... Not in doing lots of good things, not in following your heart, not in chasing your dreams, but good life and many days are found in trusting the Lord, avoiding evil, seeking peace. Friends, this is indeed wisdom to know the Lord, to serve him and to live a holy life motivated by the grace of God that he has given to undeserving sinners like us. That is real life. That is true life. And that is true wisdom. We know from Proverbs That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Dear friend, are you wise yet? Are you wise yet? Do you fear the Lord? Have you entrusted your whole life to Him? Scripture says that is what true wisdom is. So be, be wise. Learn from the psalmist. Trust the Lord. Fear Him. Listen to Him and learn from His example. See how God delivered Him out of all of His fears and from all of His enemies. And see that a uh, long life in many days is found in trusting the Lord and following Him, following him in the holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to help us to walk in repentance. As we look at the psalmist's deviation, as he deviates from gratitude to teach us something about wisdom, then this morning, I I encourage us, let us gain true wisdom today. Let us be made truly wise today. Let us trust the Lord for everything. Let us trust him for everything. The wisdom that the psalmist speaks of, the wisdom that we see in, in, in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, does not seem necessarily wise in the eyes of our contemporaries, of our, of our culture, of our society. Following God does not seem very wise. I actually, I, I read a, a, a quote from Oprah Winfrey of all people this week saying that true wisdom is found in being who you are and following your heart. There's a major contrast between what the world says is wise and what Scripture says is wise. Yet time and again, we see in Scripture that it's the fear of the Lord. It's trusting Him for everything. It's it's resting all of our lives on the promise of salvation through His grace uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. That is where true wisdom is. The city of the ancient city of Corinth about 2,000 years ago in Greece was a city known for wise people who would, philosophers, who would travel on kind of an itinerant uh, sort of circuit and they would come to Corinth, they would stand literally on a, almost like a soapbox in the middle of the town forum and they would teach their philosophy to people and they would be paid uh, 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 by those who are listening for their wisdom. Paul, the apostle, went to Corinth and started a church there. In this town filled with wisdom, supposed wisdom, where philosophers were getting rich on the backs of those who wanted to become wise, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 25. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, miracles, miraculous things to prove that God is doing what the, that, that is God behind what is doing. And Greeks seek wisdom. They love philosophy. They want reasons for life. 
Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is not foolishness, but Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Dear friend, are you yet wise? Have you yet submitted yourself to God? Have you in faith trusted Jesus as your Savior? Are you wise because you fear the Lord? Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, says the psalmist. Dear friends, let us be wise as we are grateful for what God has done. Let us, let us in wisdom return to trust in Christ, to trust in God who does save. Fourth and finally, we see the psalmist's conclusion. His conclusion in the psalm is this in verses 15 through 22, that the Lord surely saves. The Lord certainly, we could use that word, the Lord certainly saves The final verses of this psalm of thanksgiving follow the pattern of of these kinds of songs with this conclusion about the salvation of the Lord. So much that the psalmist says here in these last seven or eight verses, he's already emphasized uh, earlier in the psalm. The fact that the Lord sees his people, that he hears their cry, that he saves them from trouble, that he delivers them from affliction, so on and so forth. The psalmist has already talked about these things. He's just returning in gratitude to what is true and how the Lord has delivered him. There are two points about the salvation of the Lord that I'd like to sit on here and and just rest in for a moment. The first comes to us in verse 18. The psalmist says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and the Lord saves the crushed in spirit. Here, friends, is an affirmation, a, a confirmation of the nearness of the Lord to those who are made righteous by faith in Him, for those who are made right with God as we trust in Him. We find a parallel again to Exodus chapter 2, 23. The Lord heard the cry of his people. He saw them. He knew. But also we see a a, a callback to one of the gospels to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. As Jesus there begins his sermon on the mount with what we call the Beatitudes. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Here again, the word of the psalmist in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The poor, the mourning, the meek, those who are crushed in spirit will be the recipients of God's victorious kingdom. Caring comfort will come from the Lord to them and the fullness of the promise of an earth which is uncorrupted by sin in the resurrection will be theirs. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Take heart, dear friend, if you feel like you are one whose spirit has been crushed. Take heart in the, uh, from the encouragement of the psalmist if you are brokenhearted today. God's desire is to bring you to himself, to bring you to trust him so that he might lift your heart and lift your head and restore your soul Christian, we know that following Christ never promises a life without affliction, a life without suffering. In fact, Christians are guaranteed those things because of their faith. But we are promised, we are promised the nearness of God to us in His Holy Spirit who makes His home in our hearts as we trust in Jesus. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. If that's you, dear friend, today, be encouraged. Know that the Lord is near to you. Then, second point to sit on, dwell on. 
verses 20 through 22. Psalmist says, He keeps all his bones, the, the one who is afflicted, the one who is delivered. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Here we see in these final verses of the psalm that when God saves, he saves completely. Amen. The psalmist says in verse 20 that he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a picture of total, absolute salvation. Nothing is lost when God saves. Yeah, he takes care of everything. There is no sin that is not forgiven when you place your faith in Jesus. There is no hardship that he cannot carry you through when you are trusting in him. He keeps all your bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, we know that this is not necessarily a literal image for your life. We know, we know that many who have been martyrs for their faith have had their bones broken. But the, it's a, 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 a physical picture of a spiritual reality. That there is nothing of the individual who trusts in God that is lost. Even though he die for his faith, the Lord will save his soul. This is a picture of total salvation, but it's also a passage that is used in the Gospels. It's a passage that's quoted in John's Gospel. John chapter 19, verse 36, when Jesus hung on the cross and the life had left his body, the guards who were standing by, uh, oftentimes when someone was crucified, would, in order to speed up the process of uh, death by crucifixion, would break the legs of the one who was hanging on the cross so that they, they would only have their arms to hold themselves up to be able to breathe. And with broken legs, they would die very quickly. The guards that were next to Jesus preparing to break his legs so that he would die before sundown uh, on the Sabbath. They go to him and they find that he's already dead. And in John chapter 19, verse 36, John says this, These things took place. The legs of Jesus were not broken. So the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, Not one of his bones will be broken. Citing Psalm 34, verse 20. The executed body of Jesus remained structurally unbroken as Roman guards refrained from breaking his legs to expedite his death, to bring this psalm, Psalm 34, to its fullest meaning and significance. John is not just saying Psalm 34 is a, is a, is a nice poetic way of talking about what happened to Jesus that day. No, John is saying Psalm 34, verse 20, is about Jesus that he gave his whole life and yet his body was not broken as a fulfillment of scripture, that he would be the one who would suffer in a way most, uh, more perfectly than David, if we can put it that way, that Christ suffered the, the most complete kind of suffering that you can have and, and was delivered from that by his resurrection from the dead with a whole body unbroken. Jesus was righteous not by faith like the psalmist. Jesus was righteous by his own divine nature. He was perfectly without sin. Jesus suffers true and infinitely deep suffering on the cross in your place and in mine. In truer ways than the psalmist, Jesus, the righteous son of God, has suffered not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. He was hated. He was reviled. He was mocked, abused, ultimately crucified unjustly, and then three days later, after his death, he was raised, glorified in flesh, never to die again, Lord of all and Savior to all who call on him. Because Psalm 34, verse 20, said he would be. So the psalmist ends then by saying in verse 22, that for the one who is righteous by faith, the one who fears the Lord, who is wise unto salvation, 
Condemnation cannot touch that man. He has been redeemed. He's been rescued. He's been, he's been bought by the blood of Jesus in this life, and he will be resurrected from the dead to live forever in the presence of the Lord in the next life. Returning again to Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul laments the, the problem, the continuing problem of sin in his own life. Even as one who, uh, who is following Christ, he still struggles with sin. And he says, you know, I, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I end up doing the things I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How can I ever be delivered from this? I feel condemned because of my sin. And he begins in Romans chapter 8 saying this. Understand this, church. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no remaining guilt for sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no remaining debt to pay for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing to fear on the day of judgment when you stand before God. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Understand this, friends, though. If you are not in Christ, you are condemned in your sin. Your own sin condemns you. You are a rebel against God. You are a traitor to His glorious name and, and, and perfect rule in the universe. There is condemnation, not that comes from God, but that comes from your own sin. So like the psalmist, like Paul, trust Jesus who died to free you from condemnation. Not so that you can live a life continuing to sin and doing all the things that got you into the, the, the problem of needing salvation in the first place, but Jesus who died to save you from sin that you might live a life of holiness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as the psalmist says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Dear friend, this morning, if you have not yet received Jesus as Lord, if you have not given your life to him, do it. Receive him. And if you have received Jesus as Lord, revel in the salvation that he has given to you with gratitude, not taking it for granted. The price Christ paid on the cross for your sins It was a price of infinite magnitude, paying a debt you could never hope to repay. Don't lose sight of that. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume the gospel in your own life, but preach and remind yourself of the gospel each and every day. Revel in the Lord's salvation. It is an incredibly good gift. He has saved you from death in the grave. He has brought you from darkness to light, from death to life. There is nothing greater, no greater miracle he could work in your life or anybody else's than to take us from condemnation to being justified to him in Christ. Revel in that. Rejoice in that. Be grateful for that. Sing songs of thanksgiving to God for his salvation that he has brought to us. Songs like that of uh, the great John Newton, who in a previous life was a slave trader in Britain, but through a, a dramatic, miraculous conversion, he came to faith in Christ, lived the rest of his life working against the slave trade and abolishment of slavery in England in such a way that would impact the abolishment of slavery here in the United States. John Newton, who penned these words in gratitude to God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, former slave trader, now follower of Jesus, saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is not a song of theology. This is a song of thankfulness. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, says John Newton. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. 
His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. Praise God, I'm saved, says John Newton. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, church, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, amen. Amen. None of those who take refuge in him, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for our salvation. Let's pray.